1: Hello everyone, it's Jack from Cultaholic back again with Matches of the Month. What a jubilant cry I've just done. How whimsical. I'm in a good mood. I've, I've been off quite a lot from work, so this is like my first full week back in quite a while. I took some time off to do that big charity walk. Thank you to everybody who shared and donated, by the way. That was amazing. There's been, like, bank holidays and stuff. It's been quite a um, fragmented period at work, I guess, which means that I feel like I was really behind the times when it came to everything post-WrestleMania. So I'm still kind of catching up, getting back up to speed now. Uh, So organising this episode has been quite helpful in that regard. Um, That's right. It's time matches of the month, April. So it's been an interesting one because obviously I did that WrestleMania special, which you can still listen to if you didn't realize I was doing that. I did a WrestleMania week special edition of matches of the month because there would have been way too many matches by the time April came to an end. So this is kind of April minus everything WrestleMania or WrestleMania week related. However, certain promotions maybe dominate this month a little bit as opposed to others. And I think that, you know, WWE quite understandably saved a lot of their big blow-offs, their big matches and everything for WrestleMania. So they've kind of wound down a bit in terms of the scale of some of their matches and the builds and everything. That's, That's understandable. Interestingly, though... I feel like the conversation around AEW has also not been as much as usual about what amazing matches they're putting on, and more about kind of stuff like, you know, how many tickets are they selling? What's going on here with this person? What's going on now? And I, and I just wish we could get back to talking about the matches with AEW, but unfortunately, there hasn't been like many bona fide bangers in that promotion for a little while now. However, of course, Double or Nothing's on the horizon. So instead, I guess we'll start this episode taking a look at a show
2: called. This
1: is the most popular machine in the apparently.
2: we This is the most popular
0: machine in the shop,
2: apparently.
0: So on
2: April 8th, at
0: Sakura Genesis, you two are both going to
2: get brushed with a great man. 海の翔太が挑む。王者組後藤浩樹、吉橋に挑むのは
1: 初タイト
2: Nani thousand twenty-three. We're
1: heading over to New Japan and Sakura Genesis, which took place in April um sakura genesis is kind of the i reckon the third biggest show in new japan's calendar like they're two new japan's two big things are obviously wrestle kingdom in january and the g1 climax tournament later in the year but in terms of just individual shows not long tournaments like the g1 is i think it goes wrestle kingdom in january second biggest is probably dominion which happens in the summer And then I reckon Sakura Genesis in the spring is probably the third biggest. It's not called Sakura Genesis every year, though, so it gets a bit confusing. Like in 2019, instead of Sakura Genesis, they had that G1 supercard in America. In 2022, it was called Hyper Battle instead. In the past, the spring show has been called Invasion Attack, not Sakura Genesis. But now it's back to being called Sakura Genesis after being a bit here and there in the past few years. It's New Japan's big April show. This year's stacked up pretty well, in my opinion. There were there were some really noteworthy matches which I want to talk about. Not all of them were my very favourite matches of the month, but certainly interesting enough to warrant a place on this very podcast episode. I feel like I'm being really urgent today. <laughs> like, proper like, no, let's get down to it and talk about it. I need to just chill a little bit. Let's throw a cat among the pigeons and start off with the main event of Sakura Genesis going out of chronological order because it was the most talked about match of the show and one of the most talked about results of the entire month as well. Um, it's Kazuchika Okada versus Sonata. Well, I'll explain the build first. For anybody unfamiliar with these two guys in question, you've probably heard of at least Kazuchika Okada. He, by the time he retires, Okada is going to be remembered as an all-time wrestling great, a real... Japanese wrestling legend, but it's been fascinating watching his career over the past decade or so because it was his greatness was identified early on. People knew really early on that Okada was going to be great. It's been like watching a legendary career unfold in real time as he's then dominated New Japan's main event scene over the past nearly, well, yeah, about 10 years now. On the other hand, You've got his opponent, Sonada, who I'll say this in terms of his aura and his look, he is maybe pound for pound the coolest wrestler in New Japan, not an easy category to be the leader of. Uh, and because of his really good look, his clear talent in the ring as well, um, and his, I guess, unique place as an upper mid carter who gets massive crowd reactions, especially from the ladies. Um, I think it's someone that... New Japan have wanted to push Sonata as a solo star for a while now, but it hasn't really worked yet. Maybe because he's been a member of LIJ, so he's been overshadowed by his stablemates, particularly his leader Naito. And that might be the reason why earlier this year in the New Japan Cup, Sonata switched stables in the middle of the tournament, leaving LIJ and forming Just Five Guys, which is basically like the remnants of Suzuki Gun, now that Minoru Suzuki and Zack Sabre Jr. are no longer part of that stable. They're now called Just Five Guys. They were Just Four Guys, and then Sonata joined, and now they're Just Five Guys. It's an odd name. sounds like they're a comedy sort of jobber stable, but they're really not, because their leader main evented Sakura Genesis, challenging for the title. Going into this show, or before I caught up with this show, I should say, because I watched it later on, I wasn't excited. Because to me, it really feels like Sonata constantly challenges Okada and comes up short. And it seems to happen all the time. I did a search. They've only had three previous title matches. Maybe it feels like more because all three were very long. Um, I've got them written down here. In February 2018, the pair of them went 32 minutes and Okada won. In May 2019, they went 38 minutes and Okada won. And in October 2019, they went 36 minutes. And Okada won, a you'll never guess. Um, so I was thrilled to find out that this was actually their shortest title match. And as I was watching it, I had loads of thoughts running through my head because I didn't know the result ahead of time. And I kept thinking throughout the match of my issues with Sonata. And I realized that because I should love him, he's so cool, but I just can't quite click with him. And I realized that maybe people, and I'm not alone in that, by the way, loads of people feel this way about Sonata. And I realized that maybe people's feelings on Sonata can be compared to their feelings on Randy Orton for a lot of Orton's career. Not so much recently because he's kind of a beloved veteran now and kind of does what he wants and isn't afraid to go off script and pop the crowd. But for the majority of his run, Orton was unfavorably compared to people like Batista, for example, who were exciting, whereas Orton was seen as maybe boring by a lot of people in terms of his style, maybe even deliberately so. When I worked at WCPW... Someone in the know once said to me that apparently, I don't know how true this actually is, but apparently among those in WWE, Randy Orton is seen as like the greatest, like like one of the best wrestlers of all time in terms of uh, being a wrestler's wrestler, being a really good pro wrestler. Apparently Orton is seen as like the guy. Um... I don't know how true it actually is, but I can see why it might be true, because in the ring, Orton has unbelievable timing, he moves unbelievably well, he always has, he's just got a knack for it, hasn't he? He is a real natural pro wrestler, but despite having all the talent for pro wrestling, for a lot of his career, the fans never got on with him. Not in the same way they do other greats who are considered WWE-centric greats, like people who've made their names in WWE, like Shawn Michaels and Kurt Angle and The Undertaker. Orton's never in that conversation because he didn't have matches like those guys' best matches because he didn't seem to want to. Like I have no doubt that if Orton wanted to, surely he could have epic matches like the, like the best of those guys. And he just hasn't, which is interesting because Sonada maybe occupies a similar space, but not as deliberately so. Because Sonada doesn't have a similar style to Orton at all. He's much more fast-paced, much more submission-based, whereas Randy's more methodical and, like, explodes into action. is more of, like, a flurry that grinds his opponents down. But he wrestles in New Japan, so he's forced to do what Orton doesn't do. He has these long, epic matches by the very nature of New Japan. But this is where I see the similarity between the two, because I've seen a lot of people say... For all of his cool factor outside the ring, he doesn't have an in-ring style that is easy to get behind. I find him really smooth to watch and really technically proficient, but I don't know if he has one thing that really, really makes him stand out in a positive way. But clearly, New Japan do see something and do want to make him a massive star, and that has led to friction in the past between the wishes of New Japan's booking and the wishes of at least Western fans that I've seen comment on this sort of thing. Then I realized... Again, sorry to go on a tangent, but as I'm watching Okada versus Sonata, which turned out to be a really good match, um, I realized, hang on, Sonata's not the one who wrestles like Randy. Okada's the one who wrestles like Randy Orton. That might be sacrilegious to some, but um, I don't want to say this statement in case I get lambasted for it. I think that out of the current New Japan roster, the one who is most similar in ring to Randy Orton is Okada. Even some similar moves, like the beautiful dropkick, the draping DDT. I can't think of a third one right now. But I think Okada has a similar, in a more New Japan way, but he's got a similar kind of Randall style. I don't know if anybody else sees that. Um, So I guess my question to you before I get back to this match is this. If Randy Orton had been born seven years later than he was and grew up in Japan rather than St. Louis, Missouri, would he have been unreal in the G1 Climax. Think of Randy forced to wrestle in modern New Japan style. I think he would have actually thrived. It's something we'll never know, but think of like 30-year-old Randy Orton going toe-to-toe with Koda Ibushi. I think it would be unreal. Um, back to this match, which I'm now going to call the Randy Orton Derby because it's Orton's body, Okada, versus Orton's soul, Sonata. Um, so this is all kind of going through my mind as I'm watching it. All these doubts about Sonata's place in New Japan, his failed pushes in the past. Is he someone like Randy Orton who the fans aren't really going to click with until it's too late into his career? But the match itself reminded me why Sonata got in this position to be pushed in the first place. I particularly enjoyed the final third of the match, during which, by the way, he hit an RKO. (laughs) Like, he, he boosted Okada in the air, and as Okada fell down, he hit, like, a quick cutter. I was like, oh, my God, he's reading my mind. Maybe it is more Sonata who wrestles like Randy. But the crowd are molten hot for Sonata as well in this closing stretch. Um, As I mentioned earlier, quite a lot of female voices it sounded like. He's a really good looking guy, to be fair. Um, And then he won. And I was shocked because I thought this was going to be yet another example of Sonata coming up short against Okada and it it impacting his overall career because it's yet another failed push, yet another failed attempt to get him over. And then New Japan have bottled it at the last second and gone, no, he's not ready. But this time they deemed him ready. They've switched him out of LIJ. He's now the central figure in just five guys, his kind of more his stable. And I'm not, you know what, if I'd just seen this result written down, I'd have gone, oh, Sonata. But I'm not against it, having watched the match, having watched his performance, having watched his kind of more serious new attitude. I am not necessarily against it, in a cautionary way. We'll see where it goes. But I'm all right with it for now. Second match on the show that I want to talk about was the triple threat match for the IWGP Women's Championship, Mercedes-Money versus Azumi, or AZM as it's written down, versus uh, Hazuki who I gushed about recently on, a, on an episode of Matches of the Month because I think she's unreal, so good. Um, this one had an interesting setup, though, because you could argue that Hazuki shouldn't have been in the match. Monet went into this, obviously, as the inaugural IWGP Women's Champion, winning it against Kyrie, which still feels bizarre, but very cool seeing her in this environment, in my opinion. She's clearly having a blast living out kind of a, a wrestling dream of hers. Azumi and, and her uh, Hazuki have been two of the stardom roster I've been most impressed with this year, especially Hazuki, as I just said. Uh, also, the likes of Suzu Suzuki and Starlight Kid in other matches too. Um, they're kind of four who've really impressed me, and two of them were in this match with Mercedes Money, who I'm already a big fan of, so I was really excited for this one. Azumi is the reigning high-speed champion, so she can do all the high-flying stuff, but I think she's way more of an all-rounder than that belt makes her sound. And has, uh, Hazuki is just a real great all-rounder, proper fan favourite. Uh, she retired young, came back to stardom. Fans are vocally clearly wanting her to get the rewards she deserves for her talent, and she hasn't got it yet. Hopefully when she does, it, it's a huge moment. Um, and I thought it was an interesting match. I enjoyed it. There were lots of inventive three-way spots, and like double pins, double submission attempts. Uh, that thing where you know where like there's the third competitor kind of lingering on the outside, semi forgotten about by the crowd, and then in the ring one of them Irish whips the other one, and they kind of take you by surprise because instead of hitting the ropes they just do a suicide dive onto the third one on the outside. They did that really well. Yeah, I thought it was I thought it was all exciting stuff. Worked at a quite a fast pace as well. I did think it maybe lacked the epic feeling of Mercedes's first post WWE match she had with Kyrie in America, but uh, I still enjoyed it for what it was. I think maybe it should have instead been two singles matches spaced out over a longer period of time, one against Azumi and one against Hazuki, but they did well with what they were given. I don't really know why it became a triple threat, but they made the best of it. On the whole, I preferred the main event, but this wasn't as far behind it as other people made it seem. I think a lot of people were maybe a bit underwhelmed by this match, whereas I think it just did the job required of it well. It wasn't meant to feel like as big a deal as it maybe should have done, but I think that's on New Japan, maybe not on the wrestlers themselves. Mercedes won, which may have been the predictable result, and was challenged afterwards by the ace of stardom, basically, Mayu Iwatani. It's certainly one of the biggest matches, if not the biggest match, that Sasha, uh, Mercedes excuse me, could have, On her current sort of arc. Um, And that match. We'll talk about later on. Because it also happened in the month of April. Sticking with Sakura Genesis for now. uh, The tag team title match. Between Bishamon. Yoshihashi and Hiroki Goto. And Kyle Fletcher and Mark Davis. The team of Aussie Open. Uh, Bishamon of course. The champions coming off a huge win. Over Okada and Tanahashi last month. To retain the titles. Um, The tag champions beating the two biggest faces of New Japan over the past decade or more and proving thereby that New Japan actually respects tag team wrestling. Good for them. And now Bishamon are facing Aussie Open. Who Right, so I don't fully know the trajectory of Aussie Open. I assume they were a big deal in Australia before they came to the UK, but I don't know that for a fact. But I first became aware of them on the UK independency as a really excellent tag team. At one point, maybe even the best tag team in the UK scene, which was full of talent at the time, they seemed to be on their way to the top. And then I think, then obviously COVID happened. Then their momentum maybe stalled a bit when they popped up in AEW, because that was like the biggest platform they'd been on to that point. And they were just kind of Osprey's lackeys who didn't get a chance to showcase any personality and lost all the time. So I don't think AEW used them as well as maybe they could have done. They had some great matches, but... Clearly not a long-term investment aim for AEW. They were like, let's get these guys in. They can eat some pinfalls for Will, and then we'll get like then they'll be back at New Japan. So, you know, I understand that you want to prioritize the members of your own roster if you're Tony Khan, but it was a shame for fans of Aussie Open. Then they had a great match with FTR in New Japan, which really got them back on track. And now I think they're really showing what they can do. So I was delighted to see them win this match and become the new tag team champions of New Japan. There was a scary moment as well, where Carl Fletcher did a moonsault to the outside and cut the back of his head open, but he was thankfully okay, and it added to the ferocity of their challenge for these tag belts. Like, he left the ring, came back with his head all bandaged up like Terry Butcher for any England football fans out there. It made him look badass. It was one of those kind of near catastrophes that luckily, turns out to actually help the match rather than hinder it. My only complaint, I guess, for this match is that it was basically a tornado tag even though it wasn't in the rules and the ref is half-heartedly trying to get people on the apron and that's really one of my bugbears. I'm like, can we just make this a tornado tag if you're going to spend the majority of the match with all four guys in the ring, please? Um, Apart from that, though, really, really good performance from Aussie Open, especially Carl Fletcher. This year so far... I think out of the two of them, the spotlight's been more on Mark Davis, uh, who had his little solo run in the New Japan Cup, which was really entertaining. People were comparing him to Stan Hansen. Um, But this match really reminded me how good Kyle is as well. And it's a big title change too. And I'm interested to see what Aussie Open do next. Uh, Two matches left to talk about from Sakura Genesis, and then we'll move on to part two of the podcast. The first one I just want to briefly mention, because I think it got overshadowed a bit by that tag team match. That was the Co-Main, the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Championship between Hiromu Takahashi and Robbie Eagles. I saw a lot of people really not enjoying this match and was then very surprised to see Melter give it a, a four and three quarter star rating. Not that Melter's word is gospel or anything, but I'm very much of the opinion that his star ratings are often a, a useful barometer. But he was a real outlier here. I think sometimes Meltzer is in the same ballpark as general opinion of a match. But no, here he was way more hot on it than, than most people were. Um, the big reason amongst non Melter folk for criticisms of this match that I saw a lot of it revolved around the leg work. Eagles worked uh, Takahashi's leg. A lot in the early going, which didn't seem to affect Takahashi too much during the finishing stretch. With Takahashi able to lift Eagles multiple times, nimbly countering his finishes, etc., etc. There was a submission spot which referred back to the leg work, but it didn't really impact the actual finish. It was just like they thought we better throw this rope break in because we've done all that leg work earlier on. I also think another reason it kind of the match quality was affected a bit was that it was very unlikely that Eagles was going to win, so its 20-minute length, therefore, didn't go down too well. Obviously, a lot of matches are going to be predictable, but, you know, sometimes the journey is longer than it should be in such cases. Um, Another reason, though, that I think maybe the biggest reason this match suffered, because it was still a good match between two really excellent guys, but another reason I guess it wasn't as beloved by the audience was its place on the card, because it came immediately after that tag match, Aussie Open and Bishamon. Um, So it came after a shorter, more explosive tag team title match with a title change, and this was more drawn out with a predictable winner and no title change. So I didn't didn't mind it personally, but I also agree with some of those criticisms, which is a shame because I'm a big fan of both guys. But they'll have many, many more excellent matches. They're both wonderful wrestlers. Um, Now on to a match lower on the card that I think over-delivered in contrast to this one, which, oh, I feel so harsh now. Like, it was still a good match. It just maybe was on a competitive night, I suppose. But but the match on the undercard that I thought over-delivered was for the TV Championship, Zack Sabre Jr. versus Shota Umino, or Shooter, as John Moxley calls him. When Zack Sabre Jr. first got the TV belt, I wasn't mad on it, because I think they might have too many belts, especially mid-card belts, like the never-open way... IWGP US title, another King of Pro Wrestling trophy title thing, and now this TV title, which, you know, seemed redundant. But since his run began with the belt, it's Sabre junior's run, since that run began, I've been thinking, actually, the belt kind of emphasizes his best qualities because it's got a 15 minute time limit. And long Zack Sabre Jr. matches can be really epic and tell a really interesting story, but they are such an acquired taste. Whereas when he's forced to speed things up a bit to adhere to this 15-minute time limit, I think it really helps him shine a bit more. And it's the most fun I've had watching Zack Sabre Jr. in a while, given that if you watch too much of him, yes, he's technically unbelievable on an amazing level, but some of his matches do drag on, in my opinion, whereas... These TV title matches have been really wonderful. I've really enjoyed them. Uh, The challenger showed her his push hasn't been really working, apparently, at least according to the opinions I've seen online. Um, I have no idea what the Japanese fans' reaction is to him. Hopefully, for his sake, it's a bit better than the Western reaction because people are not happy with (laughs) the level he's been pushed to. I think he's in a tough spot, though. He's like the plucky young babyface, who's now no longer a young lion, so they're like, right, go out and be an established dude, but you've no longer got Moxley with you to get you over. It's really hard. And yes, he might have been given a bit too much of the spotlight too early, perhaps. I thought it was an enjoyable match, though. And like I say, the format really works for Zach really healing it up as well, which helped to get the crowd on Shota's side as this plucky young baby face. It had loads of the nifty technical stuff that you come to expect from a Zack Sabre Jr. match, but Shota hung in there as well, almost getting the win after a death rider and then a second move that I didn't know the name of but may have just been a more dangerous death rider. Um, But Zack pulled it out of the bag in the end. As, you know, I think many people suspected he would, but it was still a good match. I thought the aftermath was a little bit weird. Like, he shook Shota's hand afterwards after being a dick to him the whole match. Then when he passed the commentary table, the English announce table, Kevin Kelly reaches over and goes, Zach, an interview for the English? And Zach's like, he's not bad, is he? He's all right. Like, really putting and showed it over. And I'm like, is he a babyface then? He was resting like a real heel. And also another thing he said to Kevin Kelly was, about his stable, the Mighty Do'Neil, him and, well, uh, Eagles is also a member of that stable, but Zach goes, we're rocking, we're rocking like the young punks we are, like the young punks we are, and I told my colleague Fraser what he'd said, and Fraser went, he's 35 years old, and I'd just like to say now that Fraser can do one, because is very young indeed, Fraser, so, I mean, I'm not 35 yet, and I feel incredibly young, got my feelings hurt there, let's, let's move on.
2: Let's have a look at what this idiot did in America. Got it again. Any position? Oh, Jack! Bailey's he held runner. on. He held on. What? Hoverboard lock again. The 10 mass Kashina. Oh, whoa! Well, had to be careful there. Now with the hoverboard lock. Still trying to. I'm trying to chase down Jordan Grace. Oh! Oh! oh. oh. got back and forth here. Heavy spinning back fist. Loading up Carrazzo here. When you lose, and when I lose, I win. I told you, the first day I came back here to Defy, I'm going to chase you all around the world, no matter where you go. This doesn't end here in Defy. the shit kingdom, you can freaking have it. Because there's numbers to this game, boy, and I'm at the top of it. And you just seen it. With that being said, I got a nice little birthday present waiting for you. You turned 18 July 10th, right? That's
1: when that AEW contract goes into full effect, right? July 12th, that Wednesday on Dynamite, your first match is against me. Yes, let's take a look at what happened in that America. I do hope that Tom Campbell, the wonderful Tom Campbell, who edits these podcasts, I hope he put in that little clip of Alan Partridge that he uses when I talk about America. In America, it's great. He likes American stuff. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, uh,
2: Mike, I'm just going to grab a Dr Pepper from the cooler. Stick it
1: on me, sir. Yeah, yeah, Michael, I'm just going to get a Ginsters from the fridge, put it on the slate. (laughs) Now that I've referred to it, has the magic been lost?
2: Damn. You can stop giggling or I'll take down your particulars. One
1: promotion that I feel bad for recently has been Impact Wrestling. They've had a horrendous run of luck. Both the champions got injured. Mickey James during a really crucial time where it looked like she might be winding down her career. And then in the men's division, Josh Alexander, who was about to really pass the torch to Steve Macklin after an amazing title run, which would have given Macklin a huge boost having beaten him. Neither of those things could happen because they both got injured really close together. Such bad luck for Impact. They deserve a lot more. I do want to briefly mention, though, the two replacement title matches that happened at Rebellion on April 16th in Canada because they were both good. They just weren't maybe as good as they could have been. And I don't think it's the fault of the replacement wrestlers involved. I think it's the the sapping away of suspense because it led to, uh, certainly in the men's one, it led to a more obvious winner. And in the women's one, you know, it, it didn't mean as much. It was a match we've seen plenty of times before recently. Didn't involve Mickey James, which he probably should have done. But it's unavoidable, isn't it? Injuries happen. Hopefully, they are both doing well. But the matches were still good. Just wasn't what it could have been. Uh, Steve Macklin versus Kushida. Nice clash of styles. The big drawback here is that it would, it would have been an ungodly shock if Kushida had won and Macklin won, as we all really knew he would. But I don't mind at all that he is now the champion. I'm really looking forward to seeing what he can do because he has been a real highlight in Impact Wrestling over the past year or so. In the women's division, Gianna Perazzo, beat beat Jordan Grace to claim the knockouts belt. And I'm a big fan of Diona. I think she's wonderful. Uh, Grace was great in this match too. But again, it just wasn't what it could have been because everybody, I guess, was hyped up to see whether Mickey James would pass the torch, was she going to retire soon? Who was she going to pass it to? I think actually the retirement talk might have been put to bed, but it would still have been interesting to see when her run would have ended with the belt rather than it just be vacated. So I still think, you know, Perrazzo will be a good champion as well, but it's not, it's not something we haven't seen before. Um, bad luck for Impact. Uh, they should have featured on this podcast more heavily, but didn't because of circumstances out of their control. Now, moving on to Seattle, Washington, where I want to, I think for the first time in this series, mention Defy Wrestling, a great promotion from Seattle with a very loyal fan base. Um, And they had a a match I've seen described as the indie match of the year so far on April 8th. It was the champion, a man AEW fans and WWE fans will know, and Lucha Underground fans, he's been everywhere, uh, Swerve Strickland. Defending against Nick Wayne, that I think he's like 17 year old, who is a bit like a young Osprey and then wrestled Osprey at GCW last year. He's outrageously talented and he's so young, it's going to be stupid how good he is if he continues on this path. So they had a match, which uh, is the first Defy match I've checked out in ages, but it reminded me what a good promotion it is. Well shot as well, really well shot. The show was called The Realist, a reference to Swerve, I I assume. And the video package before the match did a really good job of explaining what the feud was about. Strickland used to be the guy in Defy. He was the popular champion. Then he left for bigger things. WWE, then AEW. Turned heel, became Swerve. Now he's back, but he's a heel now. And he thinks he's amazing because he's been to all these promotions and done all these things. And he starts picking on Nick Wayne this young prodigy. Parallels and differences are drawn between the two. Maybe Wayne is similar to who Swerve was before, but certainly not now. Um, you know, it's 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 going to be a real... Um, it's going to be a real young young cub versus the wily lion match. Is that a phrase that people say? Um, my main worry, though, when I went into this match was that it would try to be too epic because indie main events that are personal in nature often go too epic. A lot of people loved last year's, I think it was last year, um, Michael Oku versus Will Ospreay in RevPro in the UK, a match that it was It was definitely a great match. But in my opinion, it just it tried to do slightly too much. There were like five points where it could have ended and didn't. So I wasn't on board as much as maybe a lot of people were with that match. This match maybe committed some of those same crimes, but... Not as many. I think it was slightly more reined in for its own benefit. I love the character moments as well. Uh, The callback to Swerve's previous win over Nick Wayne. At one point, Wayne thinks about hitting his own finisher, changes his mind, and hits the house call, Swerve's signature move, which in their first match, which Swerve won, he drilled Nick Wayne with loads of times. This is Nick Wayne getting his own back with Swerve's own move. Then he hit his own finisher, and then a second one, and then Swerve kicked out. And I was like, that would have been a totally fine ending. That's one of those instances where I was like, oh, let's try and do a little bit too much. Just go with that ending, guys. It's all fine. But the finish itself was good as well, so I can kind of forgive it when Nick Wayne grabs a Fujiwara armbar, then does like a, almost a Zack Sabre Jr. style, funnily enough, like a double arm trap thing. And Swerve visibly taps out, and the crowd explode. And it's it's a lovely moment, a lovely passing of the torch to someone who has such a bright future. I'm really excited to see what he does. So great work by both men there. Yeah, I don't really have much else to say about that match. It was just a really strong one. And and a reminder that there's new talent coming up all the time in wrestling. And it's scary, the rate and the youth of these people. Um, now I want to head to... Well, we're heading back to New Japan, sort of, but it was their US tour, so I've lumped it in with this American section. It was Capital Collision in Washington, not Seattle, Washington this time. DC, chilling, like Wale, friend of the channel. Um, Zack Sabre Jr., again, defending that TV championship against filthy Tom Lawler. I This, right, so a little while ago, I talked about the response to Jay White versus Eddie Kingston, which was White's farewell match in New Japan the loser must leave New Japan match, despite Eddie Kingston not really working New Japan very often. And I remember saying that's like the most underrated match of the year so far because people liked it but didn't think it was brilliant, whereas I did think it was brilliant. This is another contender in that regard for me. I really liked it, whereas other people seem to think, yeah, it's cool. I thought it was class. I thought it was better than the Shota Umino match that Zach had that I talked about just before. Um, I thought it was better, grittier than that match as well. I think that Tom Lawler is a really great counterpoint to Zach. I think that was my favorite aspect of this match was the difference in in both men's characters. You've got Zach who is insecure, so he wants to strike, but Tom Lawler's got this MMA background. You're never going to win a striking exchange with him. And Zach just gets battered, but he's such a prickly little bastard <laughs> that he really wants to strike with him and just gets his ass handed to him for it before pulling out the win with what he knows well, which is technical sub- submission-based wrestling. Like he's the best at it in the wrestling game. But his character wants to try and be the best in other, in other aspects. It's really clever. Really wants to be the best in other aspects, which he can't. Um, it makes his matches really interesting, especially, as I mentioned, with this 50-minute time limit. I thought it points as well. This felt almost like an elongated bloodsport match, which is good because I think I was a little bit underwhelmed by this year's Josh Barnett's bloodsport uh, over WrestleMania week. So it's good that we had a kind of blood Bloodsport-style match to make up for it, but longer than those blood sport matches typically go. Um, the main event of that show was one that I'm going to give a brief mention to, I suppose, on Matches of the Month just because it was fun, but it felt just a bit too house-showy for me. Uh, I think I had artificially inflated expectations by default because it featured one of my favorite tag teams of all time, the Motor City Machine Guns. Um, Taking on Aussie Open and the team of Tanahashi and Okada, it it could if they wanted to they could have put on like a five star epic, but I think they just went into like crowd popping mode rather than epic mode, which I can't blame them for. You know it's their bodies on the line and do what they want, and it was still excellent because of the talent, the sheer talent in that match. But yeah, I think I maybe went in with too high expectations. Um, the following night, New Japan then ran another show in Philadelphia collision in Philadelphia with what I thought was a better tag match than that three-way one before. Um, This was Aussie Open again. They're everywhere, taking on the makeshift team of Tomohiro Ishii and Leo Rush. I think it was a bit of a thrown-together match because people couldn't make the show, I believe, maybe, Um, which was a really cool match. I think this might have almost been guilty, though, of going too much the other way. So whereas the previous one was too how showy this one maybe tried to do a bit too much, but it was still really good. Um, Ishi and Leo are such a weird tag team, but it really works because they're so contrasting in their styles. Um, whereas Fletcher and Davis, even though they're very different, because Davis is like a a big like a bigger dude, and Fletcher's more like long like long limbed, I suppose. They kind of can both wrestle in whatever way they want because they're such all rounders. Um, it was fun to see those two styles pair off, a really well-matched tag team against a total oddball combination in, in Ishii and Rush. I think it's a promising start to Aussie Open's title reign. And they won this match here as well, as you know everyone suspected they would, because they're taking on this makeshift tag team. But what is the deal with Leo Rush? Every so often, I just watch a match of his and think, he is one of the most talented wrestlers in the world. Why has it never quite worked for him? I know there's always been rumblings of him being difficult to work with backstage in places. I've never personally encountered him. I've seen a wrestler talk about him being difficult to work with, but then I didn't particularly know that wrestler, so I don't know who to trust there. People are complicated, man, and situations are complicated. If I was Leo Rush, I would be so difficult to work with. If I was that good at wrestling, God, I'd never want to lose to anybody. Let's move on, and let's talk about a promotion called Stardom.
0: IWGP女子選手権試合 王者, Mercedes Mone Iwatani Mayu <laughs>
1: So Stardom's big show this month made waves with people saying that it's a show of the year candidate so far. So I watched it and I thought it was a really good show with multiple matches worth mentioning on wrestlers on matches of the month. Sorry, not matches, not wrestlers of the week. With many matches worth mentioning on matches of the month. But I didn't think it was as great as people are saying. And there's a bit of my notes a little bit later on where I talk about People's possible responses to certain promotions and the loyalty inspired by certain promotions, and the way it can artificially inflate what appears to be public, like general opinion of it online. If I can get my words out, it was a good show though, really good. Not as good as people were saying, and I and I've been really hot on Stardom this year so far as well. So I'm not I'm not trying to drag them down by saying that. Um, I want to talk about the four final matches on the card. In chronological order, why not? Starting with the Wonder of Stardom Championship match between the champion Saya Kamatani and the challenger Mina Shirakawa. The show, by the way, if you want to look for it yourself, is All-Star Grand Queendom on April 23rd. Saya Kamatani, I mentioned on a previous episode, she took on Hazuki, my girl, one of my, maybe my favorite stardom wrestler. Even though I've only seen a handful of her matches now, they've all... I'm really impressed with her. Saikamitani beat her last time around and people did not like that because Saikamitani is an unpopular babyface champion. Hooray! That classic wrestling position to be in. I've seen her called a botcher. Even though I've not seen many of her matches, she's certainly not really botched in the ones I've watched, but apparently she's come off a streak of botching in big matches. Luckily, she didn't hear. Her challenger... Uh, this is like the, the, like the IC belt equivalent, by the way, the wonder of Stardom Championship. Her challenger, Mina, from what I could find online, seems to have gotten into wrestling later in life. So she's in her, I think, mid-30s now, but has only been wrestling for about five years anyway. So she started around sort of the age of 30, according to Wikipedia. She was previously an idol entertainer in Japan, or still might be actually, I'm not sure. And she is uproariously popular with the crowd, judging by this match. It was a good match as well, but I was left a little bit torn. I'll, I'll, the positives first I'll mention, uh, the title change, because Mina Shirikawa won, ending Sayaka Mutani's lengthy reign with this belt, and that title change seems to have gone down very well. I also enjoyed the limb work in this match, good working with the leg, good selling, it factored into the finish certainly more than it did in the Takahashi match at Sakura Genesis, and there was just a general sense throughout the match as well of intensity and desperation from both women. And, you know, they hit the moves very well as well. Now the negatives. Um, My main criticism of the previous Sayaka match, the one against Hazuki, which on the whole I thought was excellent, was that it went a bit too long. And I have exactly the same criticism here with this match. They just kept hitting moves on each other for near falls when the match should have ended two or three minutes before. But they kept scooping each other up, hitting a move, kicking out really late. Then the, the other one would counter something and hit a move, kick out really late. And I was like, oh, man, the crowd are popping less and less for each near fall. And they tried to artificially remedy that. Or maybe the ref did. I don't know whose fault it exactly was, but they started kicking out really late as well. The near falls were getting... The ref's hand was getting ludicrously close to the mat. If he'd been... If this if resting was real and he'd been shoot-counting the pinfalls... There's no way you would have seen her shoulder move when his hand's that close to the mat. It was like, It was like he was spreading butter on a giant piece of toast. That closed, that's how close he was getting. Anyway, that kind of took me out of it a little bit, if you couldn't tell from that ludicrous simile. I get that you want to keep the champion strong as she's losing the belt, so she's going to kick out of a lot, but I just don't think it helped either wrestler as much as an impactful, solid finish would have. But that's just my opinion. I think my opinion of this match as well is generally lower than that of many people. I think a lot of people were just buzzing that this very popular challenger won the belt and fair play it's probably the right booking decision. The next match was the match I was most excited for and was slightly disappointed by the knockout or submission only match between Siuri, ex kickboxer and ex top dog of last year in stardom, big champion and all that, lost the belt to Julia. And still resident badass, that's Yuri, that's basically what you need to know about her. Taking on the ace of the promotion, Sendai Girls, the most successful champion in its history, five-time title holder, Chihiro Hashimoto. Um, A very powerful woman, a really good matchup here, but a match structure that I don't think did them any favours. I think it was too loose a structure. It was definitely the shoutiest match of the year so far in any promotion, so congratulations there. And it was very intense. Both wrestlers are clearly very tough, very exciting wrestlers, but I don't think any of the action, and I enjoyed the action, but I don't think any of it really got time to breathe, which is gutting because this should have been, this should have been a match of the year contender, but I just found the layout all wrong. And I think, and this is one of the uncoolest things I've ever said, this match would have been better if it had just been more sensible. (laughs) What an awful thing to say. Um, I enjoyed the moments most when Hashimoto, the outsider, was on top, but they were really few and far in between. Suri really wouldn't stay down for much and would just no-sell or kind of power through with fighting spirit and just start dishing out devastating offense of her own, and then the pattern would repeat where... You know, her opponent would hit a few moves and then Suri would go, Nope, time for me to hit you with some strikes now, and she would, and that's what happened. Have Stardom been a little bit selfish here with the booking of Sendai Girl's Biggest Champion? I dunno. Like respect was shown afterwards, and I guess I, I I don't know what they said, but I guess a rematch was tentatively agreed. Hashimoto held up like one finger, which might mean let's go one more time, but it could also mean I'm still number one, I honestly have no clue. But I'm not too... No, you know what? I was about to say I'm not too keen for a rematch, but I am. Because I think these two could have a real, real match of the year contender. But this, for me, wasn't it. And I think I might be alone in saying that. So please don't hate me. Next up, a match that uh, I enjoyed more than people did. And I'm scared to explain. Because people... Oh, man, it's mercedes Monet's match. And people get very... Um, people are very for or against her, aren't they? Very for or against. Her match was against Mayu Iwatani, the match that I built up to before when I said Mayu Iwatani challenged Mercedes after her latest win. This is where that all came to a head. Feels like we've skipped forwards a few episodes in the Netflix series of Mercedes' run in Japan because there's no real Netflix series. I'm just using that as a metaphor because the title runs over now. She lost to Mayu Iwatani and it's an odd decision a correct one, I think, but just way too soon. So therefore, an incorrect one, I suppose. I don't know why they did this. Did she only have limited time in Japan? Did they book her slower than she wanted to be booked? Did she want to squeeze more matches in? This, to me, feels similar to the last match I talked about with her in becoming a triple threat rather than two separate singles matches. It felt like they were trying to squeeze a lot in in a short amount of time for Mercedes's time in Japan. What's she doing next? I don't know. The discourse surrounding this match, by the way, online is All over the place. And I think that's because of the very unique situation heading in, which I'll now explain. Should we talk about the response she gets? Like, as I said, she gets massive love or hate. But that was the same when she was Sasha Banks in WWE. Now that she's left, I think she's in a worse position in terms of um, this polarizing reaction she gets. Because now these kind of weird, ultra-dedicated WWE loyalists hate her for leaving (laughs) to do what she wants, which is a silly opinion, in my opinion. The weird stardom loyalists really don't like her because she's a Westerner invading their promotion, even though they are also Westerners watching a Japanese promotion and claiming it as their own. Um, And I think it's a combination of those two things. So when you couple the weird, passionate response either way, that just by being herself mercedes Monet already inspired in a lot of wrestling fans. Combine that with the sheer depth of fandom that certain people tend to feel for Japanese, not even wrestling fans, certain people just are very passionate about Japanese stuff, aren't they? Japanese pop culture inspires tremendous loyalty and gatekeeping in many instances anyway. It was always, I think, going to be hard to pick through the extreme opinions of this match either way and decipher people's true feelings about it. Such like a web of biases before Bell had even been wrong. it was crazy. I'm not saying, by the way, that you're not allowed to be a huge fan of a Japanese thing or a Japanese wrestling promotion. Of course you are. But it just I feel like every wrestling promotion in the world, once it reaches a certain size, has superfans that will defend everything it does and act quite hostile to those they perceive as outsiders to their promotion. Or their scene, if it's on a slightly smaller level, I experienced that firsthand. Um, my ex girlfriend was like part of the indie wrestling scene, like she was a fan. We'd go together to shows, and I'd see people be very kind and warm towards her, which fair enough, like totally. But like, give me the cold shoulder massively because I think because I was what culture? I was WCW. I was kind of not not cool, <laughs> you know what I mean? And I think. But I also saw the hierarchy around certain promotions where it had like the super elite fans and then anyone seen as like a casual or a fair weather fan was kind of just not made friends with. It was kind of toxic at times, in my opinion. I don't know. Um, Having a cult following is not necessarily a bad thing in any entertainment form, but it can turn nasty pretty fast. And that's not just in wrestling. Um, But when it comes to a Japanese women's wrestling promotion... Imagine what that's like, man. The discourse online surrounding this match is a bit baffling to me. Um, Mechanically, I thought it was better than the previous two matches I've just talked about. Certainly the Suri match. And I think, I don't think it was a better match than the first one, the Sai match, but I think it was mechanically a better wrestled match. I think that the moves were cleaner, which is weird because I've seen this bout described as an awkward dance routine. And I don't know what that person was watching because that's not at all my opinion. My issue wasn't with the match itself, although I saw people also complain about its length, which was only 12 minutes. I I don't like how Mercedes' story in Japan seems to have been rushed a bit, but I don't necessarily think that a short run time is as bad as a rushed storyline. I think that you can totally make a shorter than expected match work, especially in such a crowded card as this one was with all these big matches going on. Like CM Punk and Eddie Kingston, did an amazing sprint of a match, which was excellent and one of my favorite matches of either man's career, really. So it can be done. I just think that this match didn't work because of its ongoing storyline overall, not because of what they did in the ring, but maybe because of the weird reaction to mercedes Monet as this outsider coming into stardom, maybe because of the weird reaction she gets anyway, as I mentioned. I think people pretended that it wasn't good in terms of the moves and the the action. Whereas I think watching it, I was like, these are two really talented wrestlers having a really good match. I don't like it for what it represents in the storyline, in the journey of Mercedes-Monet. I don't know. That's my opinion. Uh, As long as your takes are nuanced and constructive and well thought out and aren't just blind rage (laughs) saying, well, she should drop the belt, you know, because Mayu Uitani, you know, she's one of our own and all that then as long as you've got a decent opinion, I don't mind hearing it, but I don't like when the discourse gets, well, she sucks anyway, because if you think mercedes Money sucks, I really disagree. <laughs> I think she's an amazing wrestler. I also think Mario Otani's amazing. I thought the match was underrated because of other circumstances, and I've talked about it more than enough. Uh, and let's move on to the main event of the show, which was the title match, For the World of Stardom Championship, Julia versus Tam Nakano, or Nakano, I never remember which one it is. Big Tam. Um, Tam was Julia's rival back when she was in the upper mid card, before she became the big champion of stardom. And Tam, from what I can understand, is also the big fan favorite, who has never held the big one. Just kidding. She's held it now, because she beat Julia for the Wonder of Stardom belt in a hair versus hair match but that was a while ago and the joke was on her because when Julia shaved her head, she just ended up looking more cool. Um, but that was kind of the backstory heading in. And then, yeah, Tam's beaten Julia and is the new one, World of Stardom champion, excuse me. Having beaten Julia for the mid-card belt, she's now beaten her for the big belt. Where does Julia go now? That's going to be very interesting to see. The last big match I saw Tam Nakano in was against Kyrie at Wrestle Kingdom with the winner going on to face Mercedes Monet, which Kyrie ultimately, you know, won to go on to face Mercedes. Um, that match was way too short; it was given not enough time by whoever put the Wrestle Kingdom card together. I suspect that was more New Japan's fault, and it should have been given more time. But in the eyes of casual fans who don't know much about Tam, it did her no favors because she just looked well. You've been beaten in seven minutes or whatever in this huge match. This one. This match against Julia, though, was given the big match treatment it deserved. It was very New Japan main event in its feel, but not to a ridiculous degree. They held back just enough, and it was very good because of it. There was a scary table spot as well in the first half of the match to the outside. And generally they seemed to go for the classic story of like babyface underdog overcoming the dominant, more ruthless champion. And I think they they told that story very well. The ending felt very emotional and earned, even if you don't know much about Tam Nakano, you could just tell from watching the match, wow, this means a lot, and from the crowd reaction as well. However, have they made a mistake here with the booking? Because I have mentioned Julia a lot on this series, because she, not just because all of her matches have been good, because there was, I mean, there was there was one particularly that I've mentioned that I didn't like very much, but that was against Maya Yukihi, but generally, she has been a noteworthy champion. Most of her matches have been great, in my opinion. And even the one that wasn't still felt big in a certain way, where it devolved into this messy, silly brawl. Uh, it was still... She still grabs attention as the company's champion. Now is not the champion. And even in the post-match press conferences, even though I didn't understand a word of Japanese, I was like, damn, she's so charismatic. <laughs> Why is she no longer the champion? We'll have to wait and see where this goes. But... It was a good match, regardless. Now on to my final section, other. I always write it down as other or miscellaneous. Other matches that didn't fit a particular theme.
2: That's the TKG Triad Match. This rule is... Pinfall, Give Up, KO, TKO, Ring Out. The five of them, five of them the to win the Match. We have
1: to talk about the two Shingo Takagi matches this month. I loved them. Uh, The King of Pro Wrestling Championship Ultimate Triad or whatever matches they were, five stages of hell, whatever you want to call it. A new unique stipulation has hit the resting scene thanks to Shingo Takagi. And I'll explain what it is. You've got to win by knockout, submission, and pinfall. You've got to do all three of those in any order to beat your opponent. Or actually, it's now developed a bit where you've got to win with three of five available methods. So KO, TKO, submission, pinfall, and disqualification slash countout. So you've got it. it's like a, it's like a kind of like an Man match, but you've got to fulfill certain criteria rather than beat the time limit. I love it. I can't believe it's not been done before. It's sort of like three stages of hell, but it's not because it's not hardcore. I just love it. It's great. <laughs> I watched it thinking this is going to be a slog because the matches were long. And I came away thinking, damn, I can't believe I forgot that Shingo is one of the best wrestlers in the world. The first match was against Aaron Hanare. Um a member of Will Ospreay's United Empire Stable, kind of the up-and-comer of the stable. But this could be like his breakout performance because they slowly told a really good story. It sort of stayed in one gear throughout, but I think that was all right as a decision because this brand-new stipulation, they kind of needed to pace it slowly so that they really laid it out for the watching crowd. Like, you were under no... Um, you you were under no misgivings about what was going on. You were like, all right, he's going for the pinfall. Oh, he's switched tactics. He's now going for the submission. Oh, and then towards the end, you realize now they've only got this certain type of fall left to get. That's why this is happening. But because it's the first match of its kind, I didn't mind the slower pace. I thought it worked well. Um, you could argue that it maybe stayed in one gear throughout, whereas it should have risen and fallen. But I still enjoyed it generally. And it's a match that is surely elevated... Hanare's stock massively, even though he lost, he was part of this wonderful match. And everyone was talking about it. I remember because it happened during WrestleMania week, but it wasn't part of WrestleMania week itself, which is why I didn't talk about it in the last episode. But I, I remember everyone saying, Henare has had this banger of a match with Shingo. And I watched it and thought, that stipulation's brilliant. And they've both done so well. They've really made each other look great as well because of it. Are oh, they like best friends or something? Because Hanare beat Shingo, I'm pretty sure, in the New Japan Cup in a shock result. And yes, Shingo's got his win back here, but he's made he's given Hanare the best match of his entire career. It's AR. This was brilliant. I genuinely loved it. But then there was a second match. <laughs> i mean, very dramatic here. Shingo versus Taichi of the previously mentioned Just Five Guys stable. Um, so I read the comments... On the cage match uh, rating of this match, because I noticed that it was more polarizing than the first one. And people were saying, oh, some people were saying it's amazing, it's a really good match. Other people were saying it's not as good as the Hanare one, it's way too long. And I was like, damn, I know my own preferences, I know what I enjoy in wrestling. I'm definitely going to fall on that side of the fence. I'm not going to enjoy this one as much. And I enjoyed it even more. And that's really, honestly, I was surprised because I watched them back to back as well. It took ages. And I still, despite it taking a long time, I still enjoyed the second longer one more. That's a real achievement. <laughs> that, that's really impressive to captivate a viewer who's just watched a long match already with a second even longer match of a similar type. That really speaks to how good the match was, in my opinion. I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was also... That's the, this is the second one against Tai Chi. I thought it was more varied in its pace. They did go through the different gears. I thought the action was more varied as well. I, I liked the towel stuff with both guys' as corners thinking about throwing the towel in, all their stable mates on the apron, providing a bit of light comedy relief as well with their reactions to what was going on. I thought it was a brilliant match. Um... I don't think I preferred it, though, in spite of the first one. I think I preferred it with the help of the first one. So the first one kind of set the table, and then the second one blew me away. It reminded me of NXT's Iron Survivor stipulation late last year, where, if you remember, the women's match laid out the format, and then later on in the night, the men's match got a bit more innovative with it. That's what happened here, except these two matches were, like, weeks apart, not on the same night. But you you get the, the parallel I'm trying to draw here. Um... Yeah, I I loved it. I thought it was brilliant. And finally, the last match I want to mention as well. We're heading to Glate, where uh, they're the promotion who hosted one of my favorite matches of the year so far. It's definitely in my top 10. That was El Lindemann losing his G-Rex title to Kaito Ishida, which is free on YouTube. This match is also free on YouTube on the Glate channel, G-L-E-A-T. This was Kaito Ishida, the guy who beat Lindemann, facing T-Hawk. T-Hawk was a Dragon Gate guy. He's now part of the Strong Hearts group alongside the legendary Shima and El Linderman. So he's pals with the guy who lost his belt to the guys facing. So El Linderman lost. Ishida is now facing his more serious friend uh, and losing El Linderman's mate, T-Hawk, sorry. I'm just reading different names in my notes. T-Hawk won the belt and Ishida's reign is over after just one defense. I checked online. He just had one defense. And if you remember, way back in January, my only criticism of the Elinda Man-Kaido Ishida match was, wow, this is an amazing stuff. This is like an incredible match. But the guy who won the belt is the one I come away from the match not knowing much about. It seemed like an Elinda Man showcase match, and then he lost. And now the guy who he lost to has lost the belt in short order. He does feel like a transitional champion, and I wonder why. Especially to T-Hawk, who's one of strong hearts who I kind of like, I'm pretty sure they have a hand in running, Gleet. Or if not, definitely, they definitely they have more political clout than Kaido Ishida does, I assume. So what I'm saying is, maybe they should have kept the belt on the dude. On the plus side, it was a great match. Really fun. Not as good as the Alinderman one, in my opinion, but still very good. Maybe a bit more strike-heavy. It felt like more of a who's tougher contest than a real scramble to beat each other like the last one felt. Uh, I think the crowd, though, were really behind T-Hawk as well, which is... Fair enough, so maybe the title change was a good idea. Maybe I'm wrong. Overall though, despite what you might think about the booking of the match, my big takeaway is that I really love Gleet's vibe. It's crisp, it's hard hitting. I like the simple production. I like that it takes place in smaller venues in front of smaller crowds. It makes it feel more intimate. It makes the strikes feel a lot more hard hitting as well. I just think it's great. Um, and I'm rapidly becoming more of a, more and more of a fan as the months go on. my top 10 matches of the month here we go number 10 triple threat action Mercedes Monet versus Azumi versus Hazaki. um Zack Sabre Jr in at number 9 against Shota Umino number 8 Bishamon losing those tag belts in New Japan to Aussie Open uh, number 7 Julia losing her belt to Tam Nakano number 6 Shane Swit- uh, Swerve Strickland excuse me losing his belt to Nick Wayne number 5 Kaito Ishida losing his belt to T Hawk. Number four, Kazuchiko Okada lose. Oh my God, losing his belt to Sonada. I'm realizing this in real time. Number three, Zack Saber Jr. retaining his belt against Filthy Tom Lawler. Number two, Shingo Takagi versus Hanare. Number one, Shingo Takagi versus Tai Chi. Now let's see what that does to the overall top ten at number 10 we have kaito kiyomiya versus kazuchika okada it's new japan versus noah number nine kaito kiyomiya again this time against kenno in noah number eight shingo takagi versus Taichi. there it is it's breached the top ten. Number seven, El Lindaman versus Kaito Ishida from Glate in January. Number six, Stardom Azumi versus Starlight Kid. Uh, number five, Ring of Honor Claudio Castagnoli versus Eddie Kingston. They hate each other. Number four, All Japan Tag Team Action: Kentaro Miyahara and Takuya Namura taking on Yuma Aoyagi and Naoya Namura. Number three, another tag team match. This time, the main event of WrestleMania Night One: The Usos versus Sami Zayn and Kevin Owens. Number two, Wrestle Kingdom. Osprey versus Kenny Omega, and number one WrestleMania IC title triple threat, hard hitting beef. <laughs> what a match it was! Gunter versus Sheamus versus Drew McIntyre, and that wraps up my matches of the month for April. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.